And while they're being dismissed, you could be turning in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9. As we are journeying through this history of the early church, we come to the last part of Acts chapter 9. And what I'd like to do for us, if I could please, is to read our text of Scripture. We'll read verses 19 through the end of the chapter. And then we will ask for God's help and then look at this passage of Scripture. So Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 19, God speaks to us. So when he had received food, he was strengthened, and Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached, he preached the Christ in the synagogue that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard, <clears throat> excuse me, though, then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through, a wall, through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea, and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Lord, we pray for these moments that we have together as we consider this your word. May you help us, may you strengthen us, may you give us understanding. We pray that the Spirit would be the preacher of the hour. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. He is a small man in size with meeting eyebrows, with a rather large nose, bald-headed, bow-legged, strongly built, full of grace. For at times he looked like a man, and at times he had the face of an angel. Thus reads an ancient description of, not in the Bible, but an ancient description of the Apostle Paul, a man who changed the world for Christ. It could easily be argued that aside from the ministry of Christ himself, there was, there was no Christian ministry that had a broader and deeper impact than that of the Apostle Paul. 
I mean, aside from, of course, Jesus, who is the the hero of the story, who is the hero of the entire Bible, there is perhaps no more prominent character than this man that we just met a couple chapters ago named Saul, who will increasingly in the days go forward come to be known as Paul. So Saul slash Paul is the one that we met, you remember, just a few chapters ago. He was standing there at the martyrdom of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. In fact, not only was he standing there, but he was a party to the the murder of this innocent man, Stephen. We just saw a glimpse of of him a few chapters ago. And then as persecution began to ramp up, as we moved into chapters 7 and 8, And nine, we find out that that Paul, Saul, was at the center of that persecution. In fact, he was leading the charge against this group that he saw as this, this heretic little band called Christians or people of the way or disciples. In fact, they weren't yet known as Christians, but they would come to be known that soon. And of course, we know that God, as he is inclined to do, reached down in his mercy and grabbed Saul by the collar. <laughs> he threw him to the ground on the, on the road to Damascus as he was literally going there to persecute Christians and spoke directly to him, blinding him with the light. And so we saw this episode in the first part of chapter 9 a few weeks ago when we had our last Uh, conversation with Luke in the book of Acts. We now come to the point in in the midpoint of Acts 9 where we begin to see what what happens to to Saul or Paul, if you prefer, at the outset of his Christian journey. Now, we tend to think of Paul in, in big terms, almost supernatural terms. We think of all of the wonderful things that he had done, but remember that, that Paul was at one time a baby Christian, who God was preparing for a special work. And so as we look at this man who made such a tremendous impact for God, and we look at the beginning of his Christian journey, there are some very important lessons that we can learn from this passage. As we work our way through this passage, we want to be reminded that God is always preparing us. God is preparing you and me for our next stage of ministry, even though we may not know fully what that is. And furthermore, this passage teaches us some things that are important for us as a church to understand, namely the, the pattern of training that is to occur, especially, especially the training that is to occur for those who are preparing for pastoral ministry, preaching and teaching. We see God using several factors in the life of Saul to, to groom him, to prepare him for his future Ministry. So what are those things that God uses in this passage and tends to use as he prepares his servants? Well, first of all, God uses active service to prepare his servants. So back in verse 18, we had just seen that his sight was restored. And the very last thing you see in verse 18 was that, that Saul was baptized. This is the, the normal means of identifying someone as, part, as a follower of Jesus Christ, part of the early church. And, of course, we continue that today by the command of Christ. And so then in verse 19, it says, uh, when he had received food, he was strengthened. Remember, he hadn't been eating for those days. 
Then Saul spent some days with the disciples in Damascus. And that is what Luke is about to tell us here in verse 20. Immediately, he preached the Christ. Now remember that word Christ has, has great significance, has great weight for the Old Testament uh, for the Hebrews, as, as this word Christ is the anointed one, the, the Messiah, the one who had been promised. He was preaching that he is the Son of God, verse 20. So, so Paul is arguing that Jesus is both man and the divine Son of God. He's defending both the humanity and the deity of Christ, both both scriptural doctrines. So what is the response of the people we see in verse 21? Then all who heard were amazed. So as Paul preaches, the people are astonished is, is the word. The, the word actually, the Greek word is ecstasis. It's, it's from which we get our word ecstatic. That's the word that is used here. They're they are astonished. They're overwhelmed. They're amazed. Why is it so shocking? Continue in verse 21. Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name, the, the name of Christ? Isn't, isn't this the same guy who set out to destroy believers, disciples? And in fact, he did that in Jerusalem, and he has come here for this purpose. Something's, something's amazing here. This is the guy that we knew about. It was on his way here to destroy the church that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. So they're amazed by the fact that this man's life is completely transformed. A, a complete 180 in the character of Saul. He's a new man. Not only is he a new man, but he has a very different message. Right? I mean, the entire theological premise of Saul's persecution was that this was, this was heresy, this was untrue, this, this Jesus who they follow is illegitimate. And now he is arguing from Scripture that this Jesus is not only the Christ, not only is he the promised one, but in fact he is the divine Son of God. They're amazed. He's, he's espousing something that he had rejected. He's arguing for something that he had set out to destroy. His life is transformed. May I just say to you that your testimony is powerful. Particularly those of you that came to faith in Christ a little bit later in life, and maybe people knew you before you were a believer in Jesus Christ. The way that you now live, the way that you have transformed, the way that you are now preaching the very message that you used to reject is evidence of the work of Christ. That is powerful. That, that carries weight. That in itself preaches a message. And as you attempt to live for Christ, be encouraged to know. Others are noticing. Others are watching. Others are looking and they're saying, isn't this the one that used to, used to curse and, and tell dirty jokes and, and go to places that, that, that he doesn't go to anymore, that she doesn't go to anymore, saying things that that he or she didn't used to say, having priorities that, that he or she didn't used to have. Something's, something's strange. Something's different. That's what they were saying about Saul. And my friend, that's what they ought to say about us. Something has changed. 
something is transformed. And that preaches a message of transformation. As those that are observing our lives, perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your personal Savior. Recognize that Christians are not perfect. When we, when we put faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. We're not made perfect at that point, but we are changed. We are transformed. You say, well, well I know people that, are, that, are, that say they're Christians that there's no change. Well, I would just say to you, if you take a look at the New Testament, what you see is a consistent pattern that Christ changes people. And perhaps that one who claims to be a Christian, I'm not here to look into their heart, I don't know, but perhaps that one that you know that claims to be a Christian doesn't himself or herself know what the Bible says about being a Christian. And so I would just say to you, if you're an unbeliever this morning, we would invite you to explore, to understand what the New Testament says about a changed life. When one is transformed, when one comes to Christ in faith and repentance, Old things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. Well, Saul, Paul, was a changed man. He was radically different than what they knew him to be before. He had a powerful testimony. But beyond that, the message itself was profound. It wasn't just that he had changed, although that's true. There was what he was saying actually, actually befuddled those to whom he was speaking. Look, look at the next phrase there in verse 22. It says that as he spoke, as he preached, he confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus. He, he was arguing with them so eloquently. He was proving his case so well that they had nothing to say. They, they couldn't answer the arguments that he was making. This was, this was dumbfounding for them. So Paul's transformation evoked a very powerful response from those in the synagogue. But I want you to notice this. Notice what this preaching did, not for those that were listening. Notice what it does for Saul. Back to the beginning of verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength. Saul grew more and more powerful in his preaching. The language actually suggests a growth in his understanding of the meaning of the commitment to Jesus as Messiah and Son of God. So as Paul preached the, mess, the message, his heart grew more committed even to that message. He grew stronger. And in fact, not only that, but then his ability to demonstrate the validity of Jesus Christ grew stronger as well. Notice verse 22, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. In, in verse 22, the word that's translated proving means, means putting together or weaving together. It's used in reference to a practice of, of gathering scriptures to prove, to demonstrate, to, to show a certain doctrine, a certain truth. By the way, we might call this expository preaching. Right? He's taking Scripture, he's interpreting Scripture with Scripture, and he's giving evidence for a truth that is in the revealed Word of God. Now, it's clear 
to me, it's clear to any observer that Paul is gifted, no doubt. Paul is a gifted and brilliant man. But even this gifted man grows stronger and more convinced through the practice of his craft, through the preaching of the word. So, so it's interesting because Paul, who is a new Christian, yet has a great deal of theological understanding, is now putting these pieces together. Have you ever heard someone say, uh, you haven't really learned something until you've, what, taught it, <laughs> right? So teaching this is a, is a strengthening uh, procedure. It is a strengthening practice on the part of, of Paul himself. So to put the matter simply, Paul is growing stronger. He's, he's, his, his craft of preaching, explaining the word of, of what we might call expository preaching is getting better. And, and to, to tell you the truth, it requires, it requires work, it requires discipline, and yes, even practice to master any worthwhile skill, right? If you, if you are in a workplace where you have a, a specialized skill, you probably didn't get that overnight. You probably got that through, through training and practice and correction and doing it over and over again. And if you're skilled at anything, it requires discipline and practice. Well, the ex explanation of the Word of God is no different. And, of course, this has application as we think about the importance of, of preaching. This is why it is important for, for preachers, those who are called to preach the Word, receive good training and opportunities to, to hone their craft. To, to hone the handling of the word. But it doesn't just apply to kind of the public preaching uh, that, that pastors do. I mean, have you ever met someone who was, who was so good at giving the gospel, really good at persuading unbelievers? Did you ever just kind of stand there and listen in, in awe, thinking, wow, how did they get to be so good at sharing the gospel? Maybe they're just really gifted. Well, perhaps <laughs> they might have some giftedness, but exactly right. Maybe, maybe they've had a great deal of spirit-empowered practice. And my friends, all of us become better handlers of the Word of God. We become better at explaining the good news of Jesus Christ as we do it. There is nothing that will increase your capacity to explain the gospel than, you guessed it, explaining the gospel. And so Paul is becoming stronger in his witness. He's becoming more powerful in his preaching as he witnesses for Christ in this public forum. This is why also it is important as a church for us to maintain a philosophy that, that people need opportunities to minister. They need opportunities to actively serve God. Even new believers shouldn't be, I mean, they, they may be limited in the, in the ways that they can serve as a new believer, but they should not be limited from service. Do you follow me? Everyone should be serving for a number of reasons, but in part, as, as we think about this passage, because serving is actually a training ground for Future service. So 
Pastor Dan's out in junior church. Who's helping him right now? Jake. There you go. Good example, right? So we have one of our teenagers who is plugged in and assisting, and I know some of the other teens help with the children's ministries as well, right? They're, they're actively serving. They're getting involved. They're observing how other people teach. They're having the opportunity perhaps to, to read a Bible lesson to the young people. This is a, a training ground. And, and not only our teens, but our new believers and everyone should be given these opportunities to, to grow themselves, to stretch themselves, to, to, to gain strengthening for future ministry. This is an important part of the ministry of the church. A few years ago, I had a conversation with an administrator at a, at a fairly good-sized Christian college. I'm not going to name the college, although some of you can probably guess who it is. Um, uh, this particular university was grappling with a change in policy. In the past, they had required students to stay on campus for the Sunday morning worship service, and they were considering the possibility of changing the policy uh, to do away with the Sunday morning service on campus and have the young people go to local churches. Now, I don't flatter myself to think that my advice had any bearing on the decision of this college. Nonetheless, I was asked for my input by one of the administrators on what I thought. And so when you ask my opinion, you're going to get it. So one of the concerns that, the, that this university had was, well, if we release all of our students into the community, it's going to flood the churches of that community. And I said, those students have no business staying in the area. In fact, especially if they're studying for ministry, they should be getting in their car and driving two hours out to the hills, to the sticks, to some little church that needs ministry, that needs help, that, that they can go and, and uh, teach Sunday school and lead the singing and take a nap on the pew in the afternoon and lead choir practice and, and speak on Sunday night, right? I mean, they should be plugged in, especially if they're studying for ministry. They should be nowhere within a one-hour radius of that college on Sunday mornings. They should be working. They should be ministering. They should be actively involved. Why? Because that's the way they become ministers. It's not just by sitting in a classroom. It's by getting out in the trenches and doing it. You can tell I'm just a little bit passionate about this, right? So seminary, college is an important thing. It is a wonderful thing. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. All right, but, but, but it should not be to the exclusion of practical ministry training. So the classroom is important, but it cannot replace the real-life laboratory. Well, we used to know this in America. In, in years past, most vocational training was done how? It was not by going off to college and getting a, a bachelor's degree. It was done through an internship or, or a mentorship or, or an apprenticeship, right? Well, we've kind of gotten away from that, even in pastoral training. And so seminaries, universities, colleges that understand this are working hard to address this reality that, that ministerial education requires Younger pastors being mentored by older pastors. That this must be part of the practice. And that the active ministry, plugging in and actually doing ministry, is one of the ways that you learn. So we have here Saul, who's 
he's basically training to be a leader in local churches, a, a pastoral leader. In fact, of course, he was an apostle, so he was much more than that. But at, but at minimum, that was, that was where he was headed. So Saul, as gifted as he was, as knowledgeable as he was, still wasn't ready. His, his ability, his background, even his dramatic conversion by itself didn't qualify him for ministry. God still had a work to prepare him. It's interesting that, that Paul, writing in 1 Timothy, giving instructions about pastoral leadership, gives the qualification for overseers, or we might call them pastors or elders if you prefer. And he says in that list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, 6, that one who is called to ministry, public ministry, uh, being an overseer, an elder, is not to be a novice. That word is the idea of, of newly formed. He's not to be a new believer. I mean, he is saying essentially that a new believer is not yet qualified to pastor a church. Lest, being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. So, what, what, uh, what Paul is pointing out here through the inspiration of the Spirit is that it is unwise to thrust a new convert into public ministry. Unfortunately, many still do it, but it's very clear in Scripture that that's an unwise practice. A number of years ago, the last living member of the Bonnie and Clyde gang was converted in his 80s, was converted to Christ. He traveled around drawing large crowds of teenagers to hear his dramatic testimony of how he had just come to faith in Christ. He would challenge these young people not to waste their life, but to, but to live for God. His message was good, and so youth pastors were planning extravagant evangelistic events. And they were so impressed by Jim, Big Jim Harrington as he spoke to standing room only crowds of teenagers. That is until it was discovered that Big Jim was an imposter. He was a well-meaning alcoholic who lived with his daughter in the desert, and suffered from delusions about his uneventful past. Right? They, had, they, had, they had taken someone who was, who was a novice, who was newly formed, who, who had uh, ostensibly just come to faith in Christ, and they were putting him in front of these big crowds and having him give his testimonies. That did not turn out well. And of course, we can look to other stories like that. Now, there are probably times where a novice has been lifted up and has had an effective ministry. But Paul makes the point, God makes the point in 1 Timothy, that that's not a wise practice. Now, you may object. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're looking at, at Paul here, right? And he went right into ministry, didn't he? Not so fast. There's actually more to the story. You know how when you tell a story, sometimes you highlight the details that are relevant to your point? You don't give every detail of the account? Well, so it is in Scripture, that the writers tend to give the details that are relevant to their point in that moment. So it is with Luke. We actually get the rest of the story from Paul's writing in Galatians 1. 
You don't have to turn there. You'll see it on the screen. Leave your Bible open to Acts 9 because I'm going to ask you a quiz question here in a minute. All right. So in Galatians 1, Paul is giving his testimony and he says, When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Okay, so this is how I came to be the, the apostle to the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but, I, but went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Interesting. And notice how he, the time frame that he puts this in, in verse 18. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. Now, in our text, so our text here, beginning in verse 22, all the way down through the end of verse 25, takes us from A.D. 37 to A.D. 39. Now, I'll bet you didn't catch that when you read through it. You didn't realize you were going covering three years in one text. Right? In A.D. In, in, in AD 39, verse 26, he goes to Jerusalem where he met the apostles. So, here's the question. If Paul did not go to Jerusalem until three years after his conversion, when did this time in Arabia happen? I mean, how does this coincide with our text before us this morning? Well, verse, verse 17 of Galatians that we just read says he returned to Damascus. That's an interesting choice of words. And verse 23 here of our text uses the phrase, watch it, after many days were passed. And so for that reason, or those two reasons, most commentators on this passage believe that three years occurred between verses 22 and 23 of our text. Right, so Paul increased, all verse, I'm reading verse 22, all the more in strength, confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus was a Christ. He then goes to the desert of Arabia for three years, and verse 23, some time has passed. This phrase, after many days, would be simply a shorthand way of saying a significant amount of time passed. And so we suspect that this three years that Paul refers to in Galatians occurs right here before verse 23. So God sends Paul to the Arabian desert for three years of intense training. What's the point? The point is simply this. God uses dedicated time to prepare his servants. Paul gets a taste of ministry, at least it seems from the chronology. Paul gets a taste of ministry and then he is sent for seminary training. And the reason for that is important. Believers possess the gift of the Spirit who, help us in, who helps us in our time of need. But don't misunderstand. The Spirit is not a shortcut for preparation. I'll say that again. The Spirit is not a shortcut for preparation. Unfortunately, 
in some segments of Christianity, there are some preachers who seem to pride themselves on not preparing. You know, I just, I just say what the Lord lays on my heart. I just go out there and I, I preach in the Spirit. I don't do no preparation. Well, to put it bluntly, that's lame. And, okay, to put it even more bluntly, that's lazy. The Holy Spirit should be working in your heart, and what you're preaching should be of the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit can work through your heart, your heart as you're sitting in your study, pouring over the text, finding the meaning of what the Spirit has said in the text. Earlier in our service, we prayed over two of our young men who are headed off to college. College is a time of training and a rather important one at that. Both of these two young men are headed to Christian colleges, which I'm thrilled for. A Christian college can be particularly helpful in training not just to do a job, but in being an effective witness in a lost world. We think specifically about pastoral ministry. Uh, Miles is studying Christian ministry as he goes to college. At times throughout my ministry, young, man, young men have expressed their interest in pastoral ministry. And at some point in the conversation, I usually say something along the lines of, a call to preach is a call to prepare. This pattern runs throughout Scripture. I mean, think, think back of Moses, for example. Moses, who, who could have been in the same Arabian desert that Saul was in. Uh, God chooses to do something great through him. What did he do? He sends him to the desert for 40 years. That's a really long seminary program. <laughs> and this is important for us as a church to think through. You say, well, I'm, I'm not going to be a pastor. I'm not gonna be, but this is important for us to understand as a church for this reason. We are called as a church to make disciples. You, you, there's like no mystery about what our mission is around here. And if, and if we are called to make disciples who make disciples... This inevitably means that if we are doing our job as a local church, God will, at some point, call from our midst pastors, teachers, missionaries, and many other servants. And so as God uses NHBC to raise up a new generation of pastors and teachers, it is imperative for us to recognize that practical ministry opportunities are important that dedicated time of study is important in preparing God's servant. So Saul has some time of solitude, some time where he is set apart for special preparation for the ministry that God has called him to. He's been miraculously saved. He's been baptized. He's now been to seminary for three years. He's graduated with his D.D., Doctorate of the Desert, and now he's going to blow into town and everybody's going to embrace his message with great eagerness, right? Yeah, not so much. <laughs> the next thing on Paul's to-do list is to get run out of the city, narrowly escaping death. Did you see that in the text of Scripture? And so now we see in verses 23, God uses ministry setbacks 
to prepare his servants. Verse 23, now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him, right? They, they don't want him to escape from the city. They've kind of set up a, a quarantine there in the city. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. So Saul's message is not met with warm reception. In fact, after a little bit of time, they kind of get sick of hearing this message of Jesus. And although you would think with all this preparation, with this wonderful conversion, that, that everybody's going to believe, no, many reject. In fact, many do so violently. Hershey's is perhaps one of the most recognized names in the candy industry, particularly when it comes to chocolate. Perhaps you know that before founding the company, Milton Hershey was fired from his apprenticeship with a printer. He tried to start three other candy companies, all of which failed, before starting the Lancaster Caramel Company and the Hershey Company. Amazon, household name, uh, one of the biggest success stories of the online era before Amazon became a household name. The CEO um, started uh, an online auction site which flopped called Z Shops. But Bezos would repurpose the idea and it would eventually become the Amazon marketplace. I mean, the list could go on, right? J.K. Rowling, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Walt Disney, Warren Buffett, Thomas Edison, Steven Spielberg, Colonel Sanders, right? I mean, if you, read, if you read anybody who's successful and you go back through their story, eventually you're going to find a colossal failure, sometimes multiple colossal failures, whether it's an entrepreneur or a business or an organization, the pattern is clear. They continued in the face of adversity. But there's even more at stake when we consider the Great Commission, when we, when we consider the spiritual disciplines. Great servants of God aren't always successful in visible results. But what they learn is that success is being faithful. God has called us to remain faithful. And the servants of God that are, that are used of Him have learned over time that the, the visible results around us don't matter so much as being faithful. There's another lesson that we learn from adversity, from, from ministry failures, if you will. And that is dependence on Him. And what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? Like, I asked for this thorn to be taken away from me. I asked, and I asked, and I asked again. And, and God says to him, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And our seeming failures, if they accomplish nothing else, grow us by making us more dependent on God. God actually uses ministry setbacks. Paul, the, per, perhaps the greatest preacher since Jesus, you know, other than Jesus, throughout church history. Great success was rejected. He was pushed out of the city. He was threatened within an inch of his life. 
And then if you follow his story, it just gets worse, folks. Like he's stoned, he's drug out of cities, he's shipwrecked. I mean, he's a mess. God uses ministry setbacks to prepare his servants. And so I wonder this morning, what kind of setbacks have you seen? Have you tried to witness at work and it's met with rejection, opposition, even hostility? God is using those things to prepare you. Have you, have you tried to disciple someone and they, they haven't responded or, or you thought they were doing really well and then they just, it's like the rug pulled out from underneath them and you're discouraged? God uses ministry setbacks to prepare us. Whatever it is that you're discouraged with ministry-wise this morning, can I, can I just remind you that like the greatest preacher of all times had some tremendous ministry setbacks. I mean, this is the way his ministry kicks off. Likewise, God wants to prepare us. May we have the right attitude when we are rejected, when we have pushback, when things are discouraging for us. And lastly, in verses 26 through 30, we see God uses other believers to prepare his servants. So in verse 26, Saul comes to Jerusalem. It says he tried to join the disciples but they were all afraid of him. They didn't believe he was a disciple. Now, you may look at that and say, well, they're just so biased. I look at that and go, yeah, that makes sense to me, right? I mean, this guy was marching throughout the countryside, dragging Christians off. And, and when, when he comes to Jerusalem, the, the believers there are just a little bit skittish. Yeah, I, I kind of get that. But Barnabas, verse 27, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, right? So he goes to the church leadership. He declares to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, how he'd spoken to him, how he preached boldly in Damascus. So, so Barnabas, as, as this one who's on the inside, the one who's part of the church, one who's trusted by the church, reiterates Saul's story. He says, listen, let me tell you about his conversion. Let, let me tell you about what God has done in his life how God spoke to him, and not only that, but he's been preaching in Damascus. So Barnabas vouches for Saul, for Paul. And the name Barnabas literally means son of consolation. That's the one who comes alongside to encourage. And you know what? This is exactly what Barnabas is known for in the book of Acts. This guy's a supporter. He's a, he's a helper. He's one who comes alongside and encourages and lifts up and helps people. This is what this guy is really good at. This is his ministry. You know what? New believers should not have to find their way into the church on their own. They should be nurtured. They should be encouraged by a more mature believer. Barnabas shows us a fantastic example of personal discipleship of a new believer. By the way, this is why we're so passionate about what we call life-touching life discipleship. This is the way it happens. So verse 28, as a result of Barnabas intervening, as a result of him vouching for Saul, he was with them, that is Saul was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. He spoke boldly in the name of, of the Lord Jesus, disputed against the Hellenists, as the Greek-speaking Jews, which, by the way, uh, some surmise had started to be overlooked 
since the martyrdom of Stephen. But then, of course, those around attempt to kill him. So the brethren, in verse 30, find out about this, and they bring him down to Caesarea and then send him to Tarsus. And so begins the ministry that, other than Jesus himself, is perhaps the most influential ministry in the history of the world. Now, obviously, God is supernaturally at work, right? But, but as we consider it humanly, uh, consider the human vehicle that God uses, I mean, Barnabas made this possible. He, he made it possible for, for someone he discipled, someone he vouched for, someone he helped. He saw this new believer who had tremendous potential, and he took him under his wing, and he had the, the thing that is so often the missing element in evangelistic follow-up, relationship. Like he was doing life-touching life discipleship before it was a neat little slogan. Barnabas is accomplishing something great by bringing Paul, Saul, along. And frankly, if Barnabas had accomplished nothing else in his life, how great is it? to simply have had a hand in bringing Saul into the church. And so the question for us is, how are we doing that? We've told you many times that our vision here at North Hills is that every person has someone that they are mentoring spiritually and someone by whom they are being mentored spiritually. So who is that for you? Who is that person who you are taking them under your wing? You're kind of showing them the ropes, if you will kind of helping them in their Christian journey, walking alongside of them, training them, teaching them, encouraging them, praying with them, studying the Bible with them, answering their questions. Who are you doing that with? How are you pouring yourself into someone? You say, I want to be like Barnabas. I want to be an encourager and a helper to someone great like Paul. Well, start finding people to pour yourself into because one of these days you might just hit on a Paul. But, but when he was Saul, when he was a brand new baby Christian, Barnabas probably didn't know that. He might have had some suspicion. God does something great through this servant named Saul or Paul. But Barnabas was the vehicle, the vessel that God used to encourage him. And I would encourage us to do the same. Target one somebody or two somebodies or three somebodies that you can pour yourself into. That before, before you leave this earth, you have reproduced yourself at least one time. If you look carefully at Scripture, you'll notice another pattern that seems to be hit on a little bit here, and that is that, that ministry, pastoral ministry in particular, is by the affirmation of the church. The church observes and benefits from the gifts of a man, and that is a key element in someone being placed into ministry. We have the wrong notion of ministry when we think someone calls themselves into ministry, or even, let me go one step further, we have the wrong notion if we think that somehow God's call to pastoral ministry is this private little thing between him and God. When we see it in the New Testament, we see the church playing a very, very important role in the recognition of a man's call to ministry. That's for free. That's thrown in. That's an extra. So what events, so what effect do these events have? Well, this is the turning point of the book of Acts. Acts 9 is this turning point. Verse 31, Then the churches throughout all Judea 
Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified. In walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. I'm greatly encouraged by this passage because I see, as I think Luke is, is driving for, I'm seeing how God took a very unlikely person and is transforming him into a great servant of God. And as we see the big picture, it's important for us to keep that in mind, but as we, we kind of delve down in the details, understand that God is at work to prepare his servants. He does so through active service, getting involved by doing things. He does so by dedicated time that is set aside for study and learning and preparation. He does so sometimes through ministry setbacks, through difficulties, through hardship. And he does it through other believers who he, through whom he works to prepare his servants. Father, we are thankful for this passage of Scripture that reminds us of the work that you did in the early church. And as we observe it, we are reminded of the work that you do in and through us. We're thankful for that. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to use this passage in our heart and life even throughout this week. I want to